0: Hi, Stephanie here. I am an entrepreneur, lobbyist, wife, mother, book lover, and political junkie. I think gender equality is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And I love to learn, especially from other women. So I started Women Don't Do That, a podcast and blog to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. On today's podcast, we have Rose LeMay, an unwavering champion for Indigenous inclusion and well-being. With over 20 years of experience in policy and programming development in health and mental health, listeners will gain insight into Rose's journey and personal experience that inform her work as the CEO of the Indigenous Reconciliation Group. We talk about the work left to be done for reconciliation in Canada, advice about how you can get involved in reconciliation efforts, but she also shares about her motivation and advice for other women looking to make an impact in their communities about issues that they care about. It's a really important conversation. At moments, hard to listen to conversation a thought-provoking and honest conversation that you can listen to now. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. What does life look like for you right now?
1: Well, I am looking out my window in Ottawa at spring that has a hint that it may actually come soon. Uh, So I live in Ottawa with my wife, Michelle, and my three cats. And I also work from home. So my office is in my home. I manage my business from here, obviously, go out for meetings and such. And uh, my life revolves around my kids, Alex and uh, Ryan, who just lived pretty close to us, and our two grandkids. So my life is pretty busy right now. So, looking forward to the summer and a little bit more of a break. And how old are the kids? The kids are just three and a half and six months.
0: Oh, wow. The grandkids
1: grandkids yes. okay
0: mm-hmm. three and a half and six months. my kids are 12 and nine
1: so obviously my my kids my daughter is alex she's married to ryan they're in their mid-30s at this point so i refer to um my kids alex and ryan and their littles
0: <laughs> mm, i love that well it's grandparents play an important role
1: it's a a unique thing to have grandkids and grandparents together in this day and age. we see each other probably two or three times a week. And I I recognize what an amazing privilege that is.
0: Mm-hmm. My husband travels for work and uh, not very often. But last week I said, Mom, I, I think I really need some help. So, <laughs> so she came uh, to stay for a few days. She lives about an hour and a half without traffic. And it was a game changer for me. Helped me get through a, a busy week
1: it's important in families i i wonder how much i worry about actually young parents who don't have families around i literally i don't know how they do it mm-hmm. it's just so hard to be there for your kids and maintain your own sense of identity and self it's um i wow i have so much respect for families who don't actually have their parents around
0: yes it can be very challenging what motivates you to live your best life
1: there's two things that motivate me one are the elders that have shared time with me in my life and the other are my kids my two elders who I often think about uh, Woody Morrison who is Hyde and Clinkett, and he spent a lot of time with me to share a knowledge system mm. uh, and then also Mason Dury from New Zealand who's Maori I didn't have a lot of time with him it's a lot more difficult quite a plane ride But they both shared with me a lot of knowledge that I really hold close to my heart, too. Um, And it really does motivate me around the roles that we play and where we find ourselves situated and the pressures that are placed on us and how we choose to react to them. Mm. Uh, The other thing that motivates me are my kids, Alex and Ryan. They mean the world to me. And I often think about them in terms of why I do what I do.
0: Mm. Yes, I find from many uh, parents that I interview that's often a, a big motivator for them. Um, I loved what you said about the elders, and through some of my work with not-for-profits over the years, I've got to connect with some different elders. And one of the things that I think surprised me, not growing up with you know Indigenous culture or history around me, was. I grew up in a faith-based home and the connection that um, some communities have to mother earth and this spirituality. And uh, in Ottawa, we will often at events have these lovely prayers. And uh, I didn't know that I would feel so connected to it in some ways. It feels, you know, when, when we do them at beginning of events, it, it feels like a different way of saying grace, right? Like it's, uh, for me, anyways, coming from a a, a different uh, faith, has found it just I don't know spiritual for myself too.
1: I think many of the religions at the, at the heart would have at its core is something to do with spirituality and then humans would build all these rules around it and turn (laughs) into religion right rose (laughs) i think we all are looking for some connection especially after those last three years where what small connections we did have to community and neighborhoods we really don't have a lot in cities when that was taken away i think we're actually pretty i don't even know what the word is i think we're we're desperate now for Mm -hmm. connection and and a sense of spirit. Right. Most indigenous knowledges are all based around, all have some level of spirit in it. Because if we look at everything and we're connected from the trees to the land, to the ocean, to the rivers, and we're connected, and it's hard to have that sense of seeing the world and, and not have spirit and it's Mm -hmm. all connected. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, it's been very grounding for many of us uh, going through and, and slowly coming out of the pandemic. I want to talk a little bit about some of your career path, life path. And as we shared in the intro, you're now running your own business, working with reconciliation. Can you walk us through some of the career and life milestones that get you to where you are today?
1: Well, sure. I started in the federal government right out of university and uh, fairly early on started to work with Health Canada as a department out in British Columbia where I still lived in Vancouver. So I was working at the regional office Uh, and it actually was quite a seminal learning experience for me. I was working with almost all my work was around supporting Indigenous communities and families, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which put me in the firing line almost it's a surprising word you'd use but that would be it in the federal government trying to advocate for culturally competent programs Mm -hmm. federal government really wouldn't have known that back in the 90s and 2000s and even a little bit later to think about how culture influences how a program might be developed and so I spent almost all of my career advocating for culturally competent programs where The people who actually define the problem are Indigenous communities, not a federal department thousands of kilometers away.
0: Right. I was just going to add, and then I'd love you to continue. Um, I've had the joy of uh, spending some time at, I might not say this correctly, but the Inuit um, daycare in Ottawa with with young kids. Oh, yes. And Mm -hmm. when you... Uh, spend some time talking to people and listening and, and learning, you really do begin to understand or get a snippet at least of the understanding about the cultural significance of program design, but also kids, children's families growing up with their culture. And it, it's quite a transformative experience.
1: It It is, especially to see kids learning how to speak their own language, um, mm-hmm. learning how to be proud of who they are, and perhaps not—it's not learning, perhaps just it—it it never is in question. And it's such a such a different experience for so many indigenous peoples that it's it's almost breathtaking to see kids running around, being not even wondering why they—they they, people are watching them so, much so closely. It, it's it's a bit magical.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did that experience lead you to where you ended up running your own firm?
1: Well, it's funny you ask, because one of the things we were going to talk about, the best rule I ever broke, yeah. <laughs> one might guess, it was in the federal government. I, I was advocating for the the for Indigenous communities, for First Nations, and Métis communities and families to have more input over program design, to have mm-hmm. more of of their knowledge systems reflected in a way that made sense to them, uh, and there was one point in my career in which a, a senior leader in my department wanted me to write a briefing note and wanted me to not reflect the truth in it. Yeah, and I I said uh-huh. no. I said no, and it was the best rule I ever broke. The mm-hmm. Boss is not actually always right, and. And one thing I really learned out of that is that, that regret will last a lot longer than the pain of dis- being disciplined. Mm-hmm. And I quite soon after that decided perhaps I should leave the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I did went off. I went out to work um, at one of the pan Canadian organizations who works to advocate and facilitate some of the frontline actors, such as hospitals, to um, do some more quality improvement for healthcare. Uh, I did a stint in Assembly First Nations. Mm-hmm. And I really thought it, it came a point when somebody said to me, You can work for change inside for as long as it works. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you probably will make more change outside. So I did start my own company, uh, and I was focusing exclusively on training for cultural competence, mostly with mainstream organizations, mostly in healthcare, in order to support uh, the real-world outcomes of First Nations and Inuit, Métis families and kids who have to go into hospitals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as we know now, there there is some fairly significant racism, and media has covered it. And the stories were already there a long time ago, and so I've, I've... Felt that you know, at this point in my life, this is where I think I can make a lot of difference is supporting organizations to learn enough to do no harm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about a lot of our audience as American. So to give them some perspective, you know, one example would be for a lot of healthcare for people in indigenous communities especially for Inuit you need to be flown out of your communities so things like having birth or anything like that you actually have to leave and the case that Rose was speaking to I believe the patient was indigenous and uh was completely dismissed and ended up passing away uh and has now led to you know the, the issues rose that that you would have known all along existed and needed to change and um really a recognition that that racism and other things are alive and well and, and need to uh, be addressed would that would that bring some of those examples to life Rose?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, healthcare has not necessarily the greatest history in Canada, Mm -hmm. and similar into the in terms of the U.S. In terms, and in fact, every hospital in Canada back in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties might have actually had of what was referred to as an indigent wing, meaning here's all the people who can't afford to buy healthcare, and so we're going to house them. Can kind I of just jam them all in this other run-down wing and perhaps not even give them the, the same equitable service? And that's mm-hmm. kind of built into our healthcare system. There's a sense around blaming the victim.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, it's their fault they broke their leg. Somehow this happens. In Canada, um, there has been a First Nations or Inuit uh or Metis individual who has died while in while trying to access care virtually. Every couple of months, the media has not necessarily covered it. Mm-hmm. The most recent one, um, Joy Sashiquan was a First Nations woman in Quebec who went to a mainstream hospital. A mainstream hospital means being managed by the municipality, the province, or territory, not managed by First Nations community. Uh, she is a very serious health condition that could have been resolved. The nurses and staff of that hospital actually made very racist slurs towards her. And the only reason we know is that she actually was videotaping it and then streamed it live. Uh, So the nurses and staff were actually making fairly racist slurs and and blaming the victim and saying it's all her fault. And then did, um, accused her of being, and this is the strongest stereotype in Canada, accused her of of being drunk. And so there's this myth that Indigenous peoples that we are all just drunk. Mm -hmm. So a couple things comes out of that. Number one, this is not unique to Canada. I'm sure this happens in the US quite often. But healthcare needs to really look at itself first. We can't judge an individual who comes in desperate for services because they might be using substances, no matter what they are. Mm -hmm. That does not demean them to the point of not not being human, not deserving the care.
0: No.
1: The other is is simply that indigenous peoples are generally are so scared of racism that we might not even come into a hospital or a healthcare clinic just because we're so scared about it right the issues that indigenous peoples in Canada face around racism are are not as well known perhaps as say uh, black Americans uh, issues around racism that that exist um, in the country in the U.S. Uh, unfortunately indigenous peoples are actually a much much higher risk if there is such a thing there really is Indigenous peoples are much more likely to get um, killed by police than even Black Americans, proportionally. Indigenous peoples okay. are much have even a less, a lower life expectancy of, in in any group all across Canada, and actually lower than Black Americans. So it is a, a fairly stark picture in this country. Um, but I think we're doing some significant work to address it. And the first step is always the most uncomfortable: is actually naming it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: There's something as you and I were emailing about this, talking about naming it, and made me think about a comment that you shared around uh, talking about you write in newspapers and had been talking about reconciliation and people denying that residential schools exist, which are... So well historically, acu- like accurate and documented, and uh, the people are alive today telling their stories. We're seeing it in the news about, you know, finding children's bodies. Um, there are places where you can go and learn about them and see artifacts and pictures. I know it's something that's really frustrating you, so I want to give you a moment to comment or reflect
1: on that. It is something is is both frustrating me and also bit scary i have to say Mm -hmm. i tend to not get a lot of response um online the hill times has a pretty unique readership i'm guessing but somehow i've I've gotten some bot list i'm not really sure it happens i wrote a column about residential school deniers saying this is a major major issue i should back up a little bit so residential schools in canada we've known about it for The the country has known about it for sure since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission dropped its final report in 2015. Mm -hmm. It has been the source of all sorts of news articles, all sorts of reports since then. And We haven't made a lot of movement on reconciliation writ large. However, we're still much farther ahead than the U.S. The U.S. is now just starting to do the research into residential schools, which also operate in the U.S., can I pause uh, and you for so we'll a second, see.
0: Rose, and ask you to explain to listeners what a residential
1: school is, in case some of them don't know? Right. Right. So residential schools was a policy that both the U.S. and Canada actually used, although not unique here. It also was attempted in New Zealand and Australia. Mm. The late 1880s, 1890s. The US and Canada had fairly racist governments in place, meaning all of the people in power are white. They're also quite patriarchal, meaning all the people in power are white and they're men. And there was an incredibly strong sense, both in Canada and the US and indigenous peoples were simply in the way of natural resource development, move them off the land. The US did that fairly dramatically with a military response. Um, and thousands and thousands of indigenous peoples died at the hands of the military. Canada went a slightly different route, although U.S. also did this, and started residential schools. Now, the lie is residential and school. Those are both lies. What they actually were, were institutions in order to imprison kids from about the age of four to maybe about 10 or 11 and teach them how to be laborers for the white settler population. Um, it was non-consensual. Parents didn't actually have a choice. Sometimes police would like break down the doors of the homes and drag out Indigenous kids. Indigenous kids would not be allowed to speak their language, um, generally wouldn't be able to wear their regalia. In Canada, as in the U.S., we'll also see this in reports coming out, the level of abuse of kids was systemic. Um, in Canada, thousands, 100,000 and more. In terms of, of physical abuse of discipline um, improper use of discipline sexual abuse of kids by staff of these um, institutions lack of response by police because indigenous peoples weren't considered to be quote human at the time we didn't actually have human rights in canada until mid-1950s we call them we used to call them residential schools uh the us might continue to call that in canada we've kind of shifted to the we're calling them institutions. Mm-hmm. The nearest one to my community in Taco River, um, it was one in Lower Post. It's One of the closest, it was close to us. We called it a jail. It's mm-hmm. um, where kids want to be jailed.
0: Mm-hmm. If I and can add, came us, out of these... I just want to add, sorry to interrupt you, but for people's context that they were still open in the 90s. Like this is not, right? Like this is yes. not... I just wanted to say that because when you said late 1800s, I was like, just want you to know that they, that they still existed. Sorry to interrupt you. You were talking about your local no, community. It,
1: it's true. I mean, so they started They started in both the Canada and the US, 1880s. It hit its height in Canada uh, probably about 1930s. It's 150, well, more about 250 schools all across the country. And the last one in Canada uh, closed in 1996. Uh, so people my age could have been in residential schools in Canada. I actually don't know about the stats in the U S in Canada, virtually every first nations, anyone Métis individual you meet is no more than one degree away of, from a survivor of residential schools. We don't call them students. We call them survivors because it would, it's it would have been heroic to make it through these places alive.
0: And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. sorry, Rose, Thank you for explaining that. You were speaking about uh, it in relation to your article and some of the response that you got.
1: Yes, so I wrote an I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago for the Hill Times, and I was writing it in preparation for Encanto Day of National Indigenous History Month, which is in June, and so there will be a lot of events, both public and and community wide, and sometimes corporations and companies may actually also provide learning opportunities for their employees and I wrote essentially that um, if we don't actually figure out a way to stop residential school deniers then this coming June is not going to be fun at all and the amount of denialism is is growing Mm. now maybe it's because i see it more i don't know what i do think is in the demise of twitter and the fall of twitter twitter has become just just a morass of hatred mm-hmm. in fact it reminds me of 1984 the book where they used to inundate people with two-minute hate sit and listen to just pure hate for two minutes just to make sure you're all emotionally all riled up we'll do whatever we say that to me looks like twitter right now mm-hmm. so i wrote this column um I should have put a lie in the column. If anybody thinks this is not an issue, just watch my Twitter feed. And so within a day, there was just literally hundreds of people saying, I'm a liar. Res schools didn't actually happen. Or even worse, the kids, you know, just all died of some disease or malnutrition, which by the way, isn't that a bad thing when thousands and thousands of kids die of malnutrition? That's also a crime. Yes. Yeah. Uh and so there, it, I'm sure a whole bunch were Russian bots. I'm sure there's, I don't even know what all happened, but I had to shut it down. Uh, it was just getting overwhelming. It started to actually get very personally, some personal attacks. Not nearly as bad as some other my um, writers also at Hill Times, but it was alarming that um, the, the simple lack of compassion. I'm sorry that and that I know happened that I'm re- to you. Well, i not the only one. Sorry, that happened mm-hmm. to all of us. Mm-hmm. I, I I just don't understand what's happening in terms of that com- just complete lack of compassion. Mm-hmm.
0: Another really important moment in Canadian history was the 60s Scoop, which I understand mm-hmm. is something that you lived through, where Indigenous children were removed from their families and put in white families. Um, with similar intentions as the residential school system, how has that experience? How does how does that live through your work on reconciliation?
1: That's a really good question. The Sixties Scoop in Canada was started actually as residential schools was was sort of being decreased. The number of schools were being decreased in in the forties and fifties. And the federal government was thinking, wow, how are we going to maintain control over all these kids? But they also wanted to um, have somebody do something. And if they couldn't do it. And so they started talking to provinces and territories and say, hey, you should do child welfare. Now, keep in mind, nobody had done child welfare for First Nations, Inuit, Métis communities. There hadn't really been a need. And so provinces and territories said, "Yeah, okay, we'll do it." It seems we should go save those indigenous kids. That's kind of how it went. So social workers in the fifties and sixties tended to be uh, white, middle class, married, two kids, white picket white picket fence. Um, and so social social workers wouldn't have had any interaction with indigenous families or communities up until that point in their lives and so they went out to for example first nations communities and they would see culture that was completely different for them they wouldn't see a freezer they would see the caribou hanging from on the front porch waiting to be dressed and to them that was that was they were just aghast oh my god you can't leave kids in that kind of environment and so they scooped them all Mm-hmm. And so sometimes with police escorts, they go into community and they literally scoop every kid zero to 12 months old with no no kind of procedural aspect, no accountability, no nothing. Now, without a lack of cultural competence, a racist might say, if these kids aren't safe, then we certainly can't give it to another indigenous family, this kid. And so then all these kids were adopted out to white families. This also happened in the U.S., and so kids from Canada, Indigenous kids, would sometimes be sold. There'd be ads and papers here, get your um, First Nations kid for $10. And so Indigenous kids were scattered all over the world. Uh, I was adopted by a family and grew up in a, a farming community outside of Fort St. John. Um, and I am continue to be incredibly close to my sister. She's one of my um, closest people in my lives, my life. She's one of the closest people in my life, and I totally value that connection I have with her. I also have multiple connections all over through my birth family, through my birth mother, my birth father's family. Um, So what it leaves me with is a couple of things. It's number one, one of the the most complicated family trees in the world. (laughs) Yes, yes. And a sense around what it means to be intentional about culture mm-hmm. i got there was a place in time in my life as as it might be for many scoops many 60 scoop survivors which one might be able to choose do i live um an urban canadian lifestyle or, or do i choose to do the hard work to learn what it for me it means to be clinket and how does that influence of who i am how i do it and I've been surrounded by all sorts of amazing Indigenous you know, friends and elders and aunties, and, and so I've I've been able to find a way to be comfortable with who I am. Mm-hmm. I think that gives me perhaps a, a, a slightly different perspective when I teach cultural competence because right. I teach it around uh, based on the value that you get to choose. All of us choose. All of us grew up kind of not knowing what, what it means to be um you know Scandinavian descent or or Asian it's coming from Japan or coming from Indonesia and and it's all we we're like fish and water until we get to our like twenties or thirties and then <laughs> I hope then we start choosing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: this is what my parents and grandparents and family of origin taught. Will I continue it? Will I tweak it a bit? Will I adapt it? Will I um what will I hold true to? Mm-hmm. And so I I think that gives us a way to all look at culture as, as a thing that we can choose to learn more about ourselves. And then we also get to learn about others.
0: Right. When you share about culture, Rose, one of the other things that we had emailed about was sexism and some of the things that are happening right now and the recognition that, Women leaders are being called out who have uh, claimed an Indigenous identity, I guess you would say, and that you're not seeing the same type of calling out uh, for males. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to that as well.
1: So there's there's a weird thing that's happening right now for Indigenous communities in Canada and actually in the U.S., and it's around um, the numerous people, individuals who have been found out to be, uh, they've been self identified as Indigenous and have found out to be fraudulent. Mm-hmm. And so there's been some major names from Elizabeth Hoover in the US through to Mary Ellen Terpalafond in Canada who have been found out to be um, essentially lying about their achievements in their professional careers and also lying around. Um, about what communities they come from. Mm -hmm. Now, everything is in flux for Indigenous communities and identity. And one of the things that used to be okay in Canada is simply to claim that one is Indigenous. And we we were able to kind of find a way to to negotiate through it. But now there's an expectation that people are very clearly connected to a singular community. Mm -hmm. And so I take issue... In two different ways with that sense. So and number one, it was the federal government who said thou shalt be connected to one community and one community only. And so mm-hmm. they gave us these, they gave out these status cards. And so I am a status card First Nation. I am a real one according to the federal <laughs> government. And yeah. why the hell we have to wait for the federal government to tell us that that is an issue. But we never used to as Elder Woody Morrison would say, said to me in the past, we never used to be, be kind of kept in by lines on a map. Here's my community and there's yours over there. Mm. We all knew each other. We were, we supported each other as communities from neighboring communities to to each other. And in fact, in Clinkett and Haida and all sorts of West Coast First Nations, our protocols from community to community are really explicit in terms of. If somebody passes or walks into the forest, what the a neighboring community, what their roles are supposed to play, mm. and so it's really, it's really disconcerting that we're now locked into thou shalt only come from one community. None of us do. We mm. all have ancestors all across. My mother comes from Tucker River, at First Nation. My dad came from Carcross. Um, I don't know anybody who came from just one community, mm. and so that I take issue with. The other thing I take issue with is scoop survivors have had to fight to find mm-hmm. their identity and sometimes they've not been necessarily accepted by their community they're coming in after 20 years and, and trying to rebuild relate trying to build a new relationships and it's sometimes it's easy but sometimes it's not mm-hmm. and so I, my fear is that 60 scoop survivors are actually most at risk when we are demanding such explicit rules-based sense around who gets to call themselves First Nations anyone may the thing that really drives me, um, just the thing that makes me most angry is that the only people who are getting called out right now as potentially fraudulent are people who are in leadership positions mm-hmm. who are women. Mm-hmm. And we have not yet had a man being called out as being potentially fraudulent. And so then one has to ask the question, what is that about? Why are we only calling out women? Mm. I don't even know if they're if the women who have been called out, and there's been a number in Canada, I don't even know if they actually are truly fraudulent. Right. What if they are simply trying to figure out who they are and they really do have that, the that the ancestors and community, the social media right now is not even giving them that benefit of the doubt they're they're crucifying them Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. well it's an important point rose um and i'm glad that that you raised it and all of these things are are really challenging um and i think one of the themes that we've definitely pulled out during this interview is uh the challenges and muckiness that social media can add to those already really challenging issues.
1: It, it certainly isn't helping social media. It really isn't. It, I mean, we whatever social mores we used to hold prior to COVID seem to be called, just blown apart in social media. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's doing us any good as individuals, as families, as communities. And certainly I don't think it's doing us any good as, as a country mm-hmm. for Canada. Which uh, is I don't so know what unf- going on in the States, but <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> which is so unfortunate because there, there are some really interesting and good things that can come out of that connection and learning from other people. One of the things that we did during COVID um was started watching TikTok. And I was very intentional. and And one of the things that we would do is try and follow different folks, people maybe living different than us. we would we followed some indigenous young indigenous women creators. and And my daughters were learning about hula hooping and all kinds of things. and And it's quite rich. And then you would talk about, you know what you were explaining about Twitter and and it's it's unfortunate it's challenging uh, that it it takes away from some of the good learnings that can happen I want to chat a minute more about your company uh, Indigenous Reconciliation Group you mentioned when you first started you focused a lot on healthcare. is that still the case or do you focus on other areas as well now
1: Uh, I did because I spent most of my career in health policy and health system development. I certainly did have a focus uh, early on in the company on health specifically. Uh, And the next couple, the following years, really did branch out in terms of we did intentionally branch out to beyond the healthcare sector because we found in twenty seventeen to twenty twenty that the healthcare sector really wasn't prioritizing cultural competence, mm. except for those who are ready to do it, which were the minority. Uh, when the news story of woman, Joy Echequan, who was lost in, in healthcare due to, due to racism, there's been a huge shift the last couple of years in healthcare in terms of their readiness mm. to have the uncomfortable conversations of what, how does racism exist within facilities, within hospitals? Mm-hmm. So I did branch out. There was a while in there, I was working uh, more quite widely with natural resource companies, companies who wanted to um, maybe refinance companies who they wanted their employees to have enough information to understand the news cycle. So if they were to see what in Canada the news about unmarked graves, their employees would know the history in order to put it in context. Mm-hmm some companies who really wanted to to embed reconciliation Mm -hmm. within their service delivery model. Uh, And some of those companies are doing just phenomenally well now in terms of serving indigenous peoples, Mm -hmm. building up indigenous partnerships, advocating for the equity of First Nations, Inuit and Métis individuals in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a bit of a mix in terms Mm -hmm. of my clientele at this point. Mm
0: -hmm. I can see Rose, especially that that educational component is so important because only now are kids being taught about some of the history around things like residential schools. My my kids are getting it, but I didn't get it. Um, and so there's so many gaps in our knowledge and, and understanding or, or what we do know is wrong. <laughs> so um, some of that work that you're doing is so important. And also we have All kinds of ranges of women that listen. We have, you know, younger women wanting to learn from others, and also a lot of women leaders as well. And so, uh, for to challenge them to think about working with somebody like you um, and your company. And so, we'll put that in the show notes as well for people who uh, want to take a look at that. When you look at reconciliation and individual Canadians or individual Americans, how what what do you, where do they start if they don't know where to start? What would your advice be to them if they want to participate in reconciliation?
1: I encourage Canadians to to learn more, mm-hmm. uh, to start with the uh, correct terms of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples to know what it may, that means, to know enough around those three groups to understand why they're distinct to learn more about Canada's history there we haven't for my age when now I'm going to date myself <laughs> um learned within certainly in the K-12 system around indigenous people's contributions to this country mm. nor the truly racist laws that were in place mm-hmm. I would encourage Canadians to to be aware that some of their history they might uh, have been taught around what Canada is, to be open to have that shifted Mm. we won't be able to do reconciliation well until we have an accurate sense of what this country has done in the past Mm -hmm. i mean you know history teachers will tell us we need to know about history in order so we don't repeat it right and my fear is is that if we can't get this into k-12 systems quickly we might lose that window now a whole bunch of provinces and territories are actually doing really well with education.
0: Mm-hmm. BC
1: is is leading the way. They've put in a number of courses through K 12, uh, there's mandatory courses in university programs now. There's a num there's a large number of Indigenous profs and teachers. But it seems that right now that this knowledge around accurate knowledge of Canada's history is almost tied to a political cycle. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the provinces in which have very strong conservative governments are also the ones refusing to allow the inclusion of indigenous knowledges within our educational systems. Hmm. I -hmm. sure hope I'm wrong in that statement. Mm -hmm. But provisional territories, uh, teachers associations and individual teachers are continuing to try to do their very best, despite perhaps Mm -hmm. a lack of support.
0: Right. Uh, It really does. I know personally, like as we're speaking, I'm thinking about, the snippets of different things where I've had the opportunity to learn more. Um, and it really has happened at, at workplaces, right? Because we we missed it in the education system. And I've been lucky enough to work with some places where this was important. Um, and so uh, we had our work retreat one time. I forget what it's called, but um, where they have some of the um, residential school information along I think it's down Montreal Road it's a beautiful facility um, so you can go and like learn about that but then also have like your retreat there for the day and there's oh, Wabano, Wabano yes yeah. Wabano in Ottawa mm-hmm. Um, it it was fantastic and also I forget what it was called but we went near the Ottawa River downtown you can go um, and spend time with a group of indigenous people and where, where you make traditional food and, and learn about the way that people lived. And that was another experience. So I'm just thinking about some of the leaders that are listening and kind of pleading like to make sure that you're incorporating some of these things into the work that you're doing. And in, you know, when you're trying to do relationship building, even with your staff, um, there's some really important things that you can do together uh, in that space uh, under the framework of reconciliation.
1: For sure. For sure. There's there's a lot of learning opportunities out there that are um, little to no cost. Um, and then there, there's more structured learning. Mm-hmm. Every Canadian needs to figure, learn much more around Indigenous peoples, not necessarily around deficit base, but around the strengths and the contributions to this country. Yes. They also need to learn more around, I, I challenge Canadians to learn more around what racism looks like. Mm. When I experience racism, uh, interpersonal racism, for example, not getting served in a store and being followed around because people might think I'm going to steal just because of what I look like, that's mm-hmm. racism. Mm-hmm. Or um, airports, which are a microcosm of, of racism right i can't um speak back because then i just get completely gaslit either because i'm a woman or because i'm not white but bystanders who who can step in you can Mm -hmm. change the whole kind of that you can change the whole sense of it instantaneously by stepping in and -hmm. so i challenge all canadians like step in for each other Mm-hmm. Call in people who are not treating others equitably. Call them in, and and try to build that safety for people who are who are not being heard. If if we want a safe community, if we want our kids to be safe, this is this is what we have to do.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an important reminder. I want to ask you: How do you stay motivated when you work? in such a challenging environment and so many challenging topics and obstacles that come your way and you're trying to make change and make a difference
1: well it sort of helped if you asked me last fall I was pretty motivated <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hey.
0: so when you're tired how do you keep going
1: <laughs> I am um, what actually motivates me is is talking to others who are also doing this work mm. Uh, there's a couple people um destin lord is a as works in the space uh, building cultural safety for black canadians and she continually motivates me because she can see uh, the po- the potential yeah. for for the inclusive inclusion of black canadians so she totally motivates me hmm. um you know, Tanya Talaga motivates me. She mm-hmm. writes a number. She's written a number of books, and if people are looking for Indigenous authors, please go read Tanya Talaga. And Tanya's right now re- writing a book around the residential school survivors. Mm. And, I, and she totally totally motivates me because there, I c- I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could go in and focus exclusively on on this genocide and mm. and to tell the stories of those who have survived. Right. I don't think I could ever do that. And so she really she if she can do that, surely I can talk about racism for a couple hours. <laughs> right. So it's it's others who do similar work, who are really digging into to things that are uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's the stories that need to be shared in order for us to be able to as a society to to move on. Those are the people who really motivate me.
0: Right. What advice would you have for other women who are listening? We do have a a global listenership who want to make an impact
1: in their communities and in their countries. I truly believe in what sometimes gets simplified into such a trivial thing, but I really truly believe that we are stronger together. Mm-hmm. First Nations Inuit and metis peoples and indigenous Americans of nobody has really said we don't want to be a part of. For the most, for the vast majority, Indigenous peoples continually come to the table and say, we'd like to discuss, we'd like to talk, we'd like to create a partnership, we'd like to negotiate. And so it's, this is a time to look towards the strength of Indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. all across what we call Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. And to start questioning if your networks don't actually include indigenous peoples, why not? Mm-hmm. When you get on a stage for a conference, look around. Are there people on your panel that are indigenous? If not, why not? Mm-hmm. To amplify the voices of indigenous leaders, many who are going to be listening, uh, listening today's, you have a lot of influence. People are going to listen to you. If you were to retweet or, mm-hmm. um, link something out of from linkedin or to share a book that you've read from indigenous author to when you amplify indigenous voices people are going to listen to you
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so please do please find some indigenous um, influencers on linkedin on twitter on um, podcasts such as auntie up by makwa creative auntie is an Mm -hmm. auntie and uncle aunties it's a very indigenous phrase and a role that we play for each other there's some amazing Creators out there making and telling such amazing stories that will will help us find a way through this time of of being trying to figure out why we all so disconnected. What if Mm -hmm. indigenous peoples are the ones who actually connect us? Mm.
0: That's so beautiful. I love your answer so much. As someone who is an advocate and a lobbyist, one of the pieces of advice that I would definitely give to clients is. You want to have many voices, right? You want to have a swell and whatever issue uh, you're talking about, and certainly what you shared there would would fit into that as well. As we get into the rapid fire questions, you've already answered what's a rule you would break and who's a woman that would inspire you. Is there a podcast you're loving right now?
1: I, I am. I'm. I'm really loving the podcast Anti Up. It's it's produced by Kim Wheeler. Uh, it's kind of covering the stories around Indigenous women, um, what what the roles that Indigenous women are playing for each other and community, some of the things, some of the controversies, or perspectives on it. So I'm I'm really liking it. Uh, I'm really liking just the straight up kind of tone of it.
0: <laughs> Sometimes that can be very refreshing. Tell us mm-hmm. about a book that made you wiser.
1: Well, I don't know if it made me wiser, but it made me question a lot more. There's a book called Germany's Foreign Policy of Reconciliation. So policy yeah. walks will think, "Ooh, that looks interesting. Everybody else will really question me. It's around Germany's journey from World War II, when virtually every family would have had a family member that was a Nazi. And how do you actually then get to a place of being proud of being German, proud of mm. your country again? And it has taken them decades to get there, and now they're actually seen. Germany is seen as a a large power player in the international scene in terms of advocating for peace, advocating for inclusion, and even at sometimes advocating for reconciliation.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: that book made really made me think around how a country. Uh, recovers from grievous error and gets to a place where they they can feel good about themselves again.
0: And then I've often thought about that too, the ability for them to move through that in such a short period of time. Really, when we look at history, very quickly.
1: I I don't think that they would say it was quickly. I think they feel that they've (laughs) taken too long. Yes. I mean, they only paid off their debt for World War II. What about 10 years ago right. massive debt that they continually paid off mm-hmm. it, a really interesting meeting with some of the thought leaders from germany on, on reconciliation theory and they were really r- worried about the rise of the alt-right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in their country yeah and they saw a direct link to uh, it was only about four years before that many schools had stopped teaching around world war ii And they Mm -hmm. saw a direct link to the rise of the alt-right again.
0: Mm -hmm. So bring it back to that schooling. Yeah, the education piece that certainly we have threaded throughout this conversation. Well, thank Mm -hmm. you so much, Rose, for being on the podcast today. You've definitely given us a lot of things to think about. And I think things that people you know, can take on and practice um, in their own lives in terms of reconciliation um, and just other advice about, you know, how can people come together to make change? And I just want to thank you for your time.
1: Oh, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to Women Don't Do That hope you feel inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode stay connected on twitter and instagram at women don't do that i would love to have you join the conversation so make sure you join our next instagram live find all our podcast and blog content at women do that.com join me next time